You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. If your brother sins against you, go and rebuke him in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he won't listen, take one or two others with you, so that by the testimony of two or three witnesses, every fact may be established. If he doesn't pay attention to them, tell the church. If he doesn't pay attention even to the church, let him be like a Gentile and a tax collector to you. Truly, I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. Again, truly, I tell you, if two of you on earth agree about any matter that you pray for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there among them. Then Peter approached him and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? As many as seven times? I tell you, not as many as seven, Jesus replied, but 70 times seven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, everybody. I'd love you to leave that text open. Um, This is more of a topical sermon, so we'll be looking at a couple of different passages, but we'll be anchored there in Matthew 18 because there Jesus gives us such practical instruction on how to respond to offence sin in the church and so that's what this morning is all about i'm afraid this sermon is a little bit more seminarish than i that i would prefer but um we got a lot to get through and uh so i'm just gonna have to move fast if we're gonna get out of here by lunchtime all right and so if if you're thinking this is it's just too fast and there's too much information i understand that uh we'll give you on your way out you can take one of these we'll have them at the door um, and it just, this is outlines all the points I'm going to make um, this morning. So uh, you don't need to feel like you need to uh, take notes, just relax. And uh, the prayer is that God, by his spirit, through his word, would be transforming us to be more like Jesus and to live more in line with Jesus' vision for the church. And that's what this is about. This, this issue of conflict resolution is so important to the health of local church life really is imperative. Uh, if we're going to live as a flourishing community, we need to get our minds and hearts around this, and we need to adjust our behavior away from that which we have received, perhaps through our family of origin, through our p- personality, dispositions, whatever. Uh, we need to constantly reprove, to reshape the way that we behave, to be in line with the way of Jesus, and so that's what this morning is all about. I have to tell you that the hardest and most painful seasons of life for me in this church have not been when someone has been very ill or even when that people have died, and it's not been um, constantly keeping the walls at the gate financially and trying to figure out how we're going to pay the light bill or having the boom gates torn off their hinges by some moron. Um, it's, not, it's, not, it's not that. The most painful seasons of life have been seasons of conflict, 
And there have been seasons where there's been conflict in the church that hasn't been managed and dealt with in a gospel-centered way, where things have regressed into fleshly and worldly ways of dealing with things. Those have been the most, for me personally, most painful, most stressful times. And so even just for my sake, much less for the glory of God and for the flourishing of the church, we need to attend to this teaching and we need to absorb it and reprove, reshape our lives around it. So, first, before we get into the actual kind of steps that Jesus lays out for conflict resolution, I just want to make the, the argument that this in itself is really important to God himself. God cares deeply. He is uh, jealous for us to, to deal with conflict, sin, offense, in the way that he outlines here. He's very, very um, particular about it. It carries, the way that we respond to this kind of thing carries a lot of weight with God and it in some sense determines the, the health and flourishing of the community of God, the people of God. So let me just give you a couple of uh, lines of argument for why I say that. First of all, in Matthew 5, Uh, Jesus says this, you remember this from the Sermon on the Mount. He says, so if you're offering your gift on the altar and there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled with your brother or sister and then come and offer your gift. That's how important Jesus sees this issue. He says it's more important than you worshipping God. You find several times throughout, particularly the Old Testament prophets, God says, I don't want your worship. I'm sick of hearing your songs. I have no interest in your sacrifices because of this injustice, this oppression of the poor or whatever. And Jesus adds another one here. He says, if there is unresolved conflict, forget about turning up to church. (laughs) That's pretty intense. First, go and be reconciled. Then, come and offer your gift. So that's the first line of argument. That it doesn't really need to be any more than that. That seems pretty black and white to me. But I, I want to investigate just two passages, one of which is in this text today, two that, that are really easily misunderstood and historically have been massively misunderstood. So just to get us on the right track here, I, by God's grace... First of all, from Matthew 16, you have Jesus speaking to Peter, and he says, I say to you that you are Peter. In Greek, that's Petros, it means rock. It's a little play on words here. I say to you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. The gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. This is where cartoonists get their image of Peter at the pearly gates, figuring out who's in and who's out. Um, That's not what's going on here. But it's not entirely off base either. Jesus is giving Peter in this moment authority, great authority, 
Uh, Our Catholic brothers and sisters see this as Jesus making Peter the first Pope and they draw out from that all kinds of teaching about Peter's infallibility and all this stuff. Forget that. Jesus is saying to Peter, who has just confessed that he is the Christ, right? He has preached the gospel with his words. On that basis, as a preacher of the gospel, Peter has authority to determine uh, discipline in the church community. To be able to say, this is how you ought to behave and this is how you ought not behave and to make distinctions between the two. He gives that to Peter, but crucially, two chapters later, he gives it to all of us. So Matthew 18, where we are, just hear the resonance and the, 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 the echo of what he just said to Peter. Truly, I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. Again, truly I tell you, if two of you on earth agree about any matter that you pray for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there among them. Now, the context for this is really, really important. Uh, we are prone to take particularly that last verse and, you know, at the prayer meeting when only two people turn up, we're like, well... It's all right. God's here with us. Um, That's true. Uh, God's there with you if you're the only one at the prayer meeting. God is omnipotent. This is actually another one of Jesus' claims to divinity. I am there. He's saying, I'm I'm all present. Uh, But that's the case with anyone. Two, three, one, thousand The context here is really important. Jesus is talking about church discipline. The reference to two or three goes to a a verse we're going to look at here about witnesses to an offense. So he's saying where there are two or three witnesses to an offense and you are dealing with the the offense on biblical grounds, I am there with you in this. The authority of Jesus himself is in that meeting. And the determination made by godly authority using biblical principles, the determination about this person and whether or not they have come to repentance and reconciliation, Jesus says, God agrees. Talk about like weighty authority. It adds, by the way, an enormous amount of weight of condemnation to church leaders who abuse this. So it cuts both ways. Jesus' brother James says, not many of you should seek to be teachers because you know you'll be judged more harshly. That's this kind of thing. There is an authority that carries with it a great deal of responsibility. And Jesus says to the church leaders, when you are gathered and you are calling someone to repentance on biblical grounds using my formula for reconciliation, As you do that, I am with you. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Huge. That's why we need to spend some time on this this morning. We're dealing with really heavy stuff. So then, I want you to imagine, and this is going to be really important for this exercise this morning. I want you to imagine or remember, recall a time where you have been offended 
by someone in the church community. Maybe this church might be another one. Call to mind an occasion, and I'm assuming because we live in a fallen world that all of us have experienced some kind of offense, some kind of conflict in church life. So think about that. What happened? How did it make you feel? And with that in mind, I want to take us through this process that ought to lead to reconciliation. So, first of all, we need to recognize that all of us bring baggage to this. Uh, All of us have, throughout our life, experienced pain, maybe some level of trauma, and that shapes the way we respond to conflict. Most of this isn't your fault. This is stuff that has been done to you or probably stuff that happened when you were a really little kid. And it shapes the way that you react to all kinds of things, particularly to conflict. So, some of us will respond to conflict in a passive way. We will come against this this experience that feels very uncomfortable and we'll just withdraw and we'll let whatever happened happen and then we'll just try and push it away and numb it down and, and just get away from it. It's a passive response. Some of us react aggressively. We, 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 we confront some kind of conflict and we just want to get straight into it. We want to win. See this, man, I saw this yesterday. I spent a bit of time down at Caroline Springs Square and it People were just, I don't know what it was yesterday, I don't know if it was just the gloomy weather or something, people were angry. I'd, just, just at the butcher, when I was there, just window shopping really, no, when I was there buying some stuff, there was just a lot of people lining up, some people had tickets, you know, wait, and some people didn't, and people who had to wait or who got skipped over in the line or what, were just angry. And I assume it's because they hadn't got their meat yet, and once they got their meat, it would have mollified them a little bit. But is that just me? All right. But it was just, it was just tangible. It made me feel really uncomfortable. I don't, I'm not a big, I don't enjoy conflict. So I just kind of wanted to get out of there. But some people respond with aggression, right? They want to make something of it immediately. Others respond in the worst way, which is passive aggression, um, which I just can't stand. Uh, but it's a way of responding to offense by, by being both passive and aggressive, saying something like, well, yeah, I knew, I know, of course you're going to treat me like that. I just, you know, you're, I'm, I'm just a doormat to everybody. That's passive aggression. It's aggressive in denouncing the person who has done something wrong, but it's passive in that it doesn't, it's, there's no, nothing constructive. The worst of all worlds. That each of their, in, in their own way, each of those responses is wrong. It's not Christ-like. The Christ-like response is a beautiful combination of grace and truth. This is what I love about Jesus. Even if you just read the Gospels as biographies and you're just interested in what kind of guy this person is, just the way that he deals in every situation with people 
full of grace and truth. In fact, that's what John says about him in his gospel in chapter 1. He says, The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory. The glory is the one and only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. This is probably the most frequent prayer I pray in this season of life for myself. God, just make me full of grace and truth. Not some kind of combination of one or the other. Not on a spectrum of more forgiving and, and more confrontational. Whatever, just full of grace and truth. All of, all of it. That's the way that Jesus not only lived, but it's what he um, reveals to us as the way of responding to conflict. So going back to that situation where you've been offended, just kind of workshop this as we go through. See if this is how you responded. Think about how you might respond in the future. So, first of all, before you react to that pain, that offense, that sin, before you react... I'm going to pull that up on the screen. All right, point number one. Before you react, examine yourself. This is so important because conflict, I think, by its nature, draws us into itself. Most of us are really quite sensitive to conflict, particularly in the church where we have these very... Um, close-knit relationships with one another. We're called brothers and sisters, right? And so we, get, we can get very drawn in and our focus narrows to this very particular situation, this person, this thing that they did to me. And so examining ourselves just broadens our perspective, gives us some perspective. Examining ourselves reminds us that we are not perfect, The worst thing that can happen to you as you come to conflict resolution is to feel self-righteous. Recipe for disaster. To put yourself in the white and them in the black, to put yourself in the judgment seat and them in the dock, terrible things ensue. First, examine yourself. Jesus says, again, in the Sermon on the Mount, you remember this from Matthew chapter 7, why do you look at the splinter in your brother's eye but don't notice the beam of wood in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take that splinter out of your eye? And look, there's a beam of wood in your own eye. Hypocrite. First, take the beam of wood out of your own eye and then you'll see clearly to take the splinter out of your brother's eye. If we remove the log then we can start the work of grace, which brings about reconciliation, the grace to take the splinter out from our brother's eye. Saves us from being hypocrites, which is a good thing at all times, and it broadens our perspective and lets us think about things more reasonably than we would if we were just reacting emotionally. Makes good sense. Point number two. First of all, examine yourself. Second of all, ask yourself the question, can I absorb this offense? Can I absorb it? Now, crucially, I'm not saying can I move on, can I forget it, can I overlook it? The question is, can I absorb it? It's not saying that it doesn't matter. To absorb an offense costs you something. It's painful. On the cross, Jesus absorbed the wrath of God. That's what was making him sweat blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. 
the thought of having to absorb God's just wrath against sin, to absorb all of the offenses that anyone has ever committed against God. So this is costly. It's not a, it's not a passive response, like I'll, I'll just tuck that away. I'll deal with it in therapy one day. No, this is an, this is a, a, an initiative, a definite decision to say this person has sinned, but I'm going to absorb that sin. This is the example of Jesus. This is Jesus on the cross saying, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. Very Christ-like. Proverbs chapter 19 says, a person's insight or, or wisdom or insight gives him patience and his virtue is to overlook an offense. To be able to say, I have a right here in some sense to react, uh, to, to get back, to make them pay, but I'm going to rather absorb it. I, just, I, I need to make really clear here, this, this idea, and I, and I commend it to you, um, is, is not to be applied in situations of ongoing abuse. There is no place for someone to just continually suffer endlessly saying, well, I'm, just, I'm being like Christ here, I'm being crucified. Ongoing abuse needs to be, needs to be dealt with. But I think most of what happens in church life when it comes to conflict is not that kind of thing, is it? It's, it's, it's the unintentional offence it's the, even the intentional offense that doesn't need to be made a big deal of. I think, yeah, oh, well, that's what I think. A lot of conflict in the church could end here, could be dealt with here. Now, if you can't absorb the offense, if you don't think that it's right to absorb the offense, or that if it's too big and too monumental for you to take that on yourself, then here's where we go next. Point one, prepare. Next two points are about preparation. If you're going to deal with an offender, someone who has sinned against you, you can't just jump in and shoot from the hip. That's where all kinds of bad stuff happens. You need to prepare, prayerfully prepare. So first of all, prepare to speak the truth in love. This is a wonderful Christian principle for communication. Wonderful. This church would flourish if all of us decided from now on, I'm going to make it my mission to speak the truth in love. This is Jesus. This is full of grace and truth. Now, most of us fall somewhere on the spectrum in terms of our natural, fleshly, worldly way of dealing with people. Some of us tend towards more truth. I'm going to tell them where they went wrong. Some of us tend towards more love. Well, I'm just going to let it go this time. 
But the combination of both is the most important thing. This is, this is the recipe for flourishing. Truth in love, truth in love on all occasions. Motivated by the gospel and for the sake of the glory of God, you can speak the truth in love to anyone and be at peace. Even if they react badly, you can be at peace. This is what the Bible calls edification. It's edifying. It's building up. An edifice is a building. You are building up the church by speaking the truth in love. We hear this in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 15. Speaking the truth in love, let us grow in every way into him who is the head Christ. He's talking about the health of a body. Church is a body. If we want to be this healthy, vibrant, strong specimen of a church body, then we need to grow up. And a big part of growing up is being able to speak the truth in love. Speak the truth in love. Move on to point two. If you can't absorb the offense, prepare to speak the truth in love. Also, you need to prepare to forgive. Forgive? That's <laughs> forgive and reconcile. Prepare to forgive and reconcile. They talk in business about uh, negotiation tactics, right? You need to, if you're going into a negotiation, you need to determine before you go in the outcome that you want making sense to some of you business types. You need to, before that meeting, you've got in your mind, they say, write it down, um, say it to yourself, speak it into a mirror. You need to know this is what I want to come out with. You'll be much more clear about what you want in the midst of the negotiation. Well, for Christians seeking reconciliation, we need to know what we want to get out of this confrontation, this Speaking the truth in love. We need to know. Because in the heat of the moment, we can lose our way. When we're emotional, we're feeling hurt, we're feeling frustrated, we can easily regress into fleshly ways of doing things. This has been on my mind a lot recently because I bought a car in January, got this big truck, take me fishing. And, uh, well, I will take the truck fishing, but you know what I mean. It was, it's to get me into all the places that no one else can get, this big old truck. And uh, two weeks after I got it, it just completely blew up. And then it got taken away on a tow truck, and I still don't have it. And it's, um, I don't know, nine or ten weeks since. And so I, I've been calling up every week and just letting him know I'm still here. But on Friday, I called up the guy, and I just wanted to give him an ultimatum. I was like, I understand, part, you know, it's been hard to get parts, it's whatever, whatever. I, I just, I need the car by Monday or I need my money back today. And so I knew going in that if it was going to be car back today, I had to have assurances about it, uh, car back Monday, I had to have assurances about it being in working order and if it was money back, it needed to be then and there and case closed. So we had a chat and, you know, he, he's, he's a salesman. Like, he's way better at this than me. He's, he's got all of the tricks. But one thing that saved me from um, 
disqualifying myself from being a pastor in the midst of that conversation was remembering the way of Jesus, but also being clear about what I want to get out of this. So it is here. We need to be clear. Our goal, no matter what the situation, our goal is forgiveness and reconciliation. There's no place in Christian conflict resolution for forgiveness, reconciliation, and retribution. Again, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, you heard it has been said, eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say, this is difficult for us because most of us have been raised in a context where retribution is always on the agenda. Like, you, someone's done something to you, you will do it back to them. That's part, like that. If, if you don't think that's part of our nature, just look at a kindergarten class. Like, That's how we function as human beings. Jesus is calling us to something else. You need to know that in the midst of conflict, you will be told by unbelievers, and God help us, maybe some people from within the church, you might be told, well, you you know, they've done the wrong thing. You deserve... Get something back. It's not true. We follow a suffering saviour. We follow the greatest example of innocent suffering, of someone not getting their own back. Our goal is forgiveness. It's reconciliation. It's absorbing offence. It's suffering for the sake of unity. So Jesus says in Matthew 18 and 21 to 22, Peter approached him and asked, Lord, how many times must I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? As many as seven times, and you need to hear him sort of boasting. Seven times. Like that's about seven times more than I should, right? That's the, that, that was the accepted kind of gold standard in Peter's day. Seven times. And Jesus says, Not seven. Is it five? Three? Seventy times seven. Which is just his way of saying infinity. If he was a four-year-old, he'd say infinity. Seventy times seven. That Jesus is saying your willingness to forgive needs to be limitless. Why? Think about how God treats you. This is the great leveler. Whenever you feel like some righteous indignation and like you want to withhold forgiveness from anyone, all you have to do is think, I just tally up. How many times has God forgiven me? Seven? Infinity. The whole basis for this entire model doesn't make sense outside of Salvation by grace through faith. That's the basis for this whole thing. God forgives you not because he needs to, but because of his unmerited favor. He doesn't owe you one. He doesn't owe you anything. 
One of the great passages I like to read when I'm doing conflict resolution with people is from Ephesians chapter 4. In fact, just like the whole chapter of Ephesians chapter 4, but here's a couple of verses that are really profound. He says, let all, how much? All. Bitterness, anger, and wrath, shouting, and slander be removed from you like a cancer, along with all malice. And be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as God also forgave you in Christ. All right, we've got to keep moving. So, point number three on this. If you can't absorb the offense, prepare to speak the truth in love, prepare to forgive and reconcile, and then act. Speak to the person in private first. First. Speak to the person in private first. Emphatically. This, my friends, if we did this, oh, it would gut, gut this church of so much toxic gossip. Gossip is toxic like venom. It kills churches. Some of you might have come from churches that were killed by gossip. And following this simple idea, this simple command, would just gut it like a fish. Gut our church of so much toxic gossip. God, help us. Speak to the person privately first. Matthew 18, 15. If your brother sins against you, go Tell him his fault between you and him alone. Do you think he's emphatic about this? Between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. That's the goal, remember? Your goal in going and speaking to this man or woman in private is not to win an argument, it's not even to get an apology though that would be nice and a good uh, evidence that they are truly repentant. But your goal is to win a person, not an argument. Those of you who are really competitive and tend towards the aggressive response, just reprogram your brain like this. Instead of winning this argument, just say, the competition is now winning this person. And then play that game. If that fails, and you really have just gone straight to the single person and not done the big like tour of the foyer and then got the people like the coffee and the small group and the like and haven't done all that and then just shares with some people just for the sake of prayer. Just, just so you're praying, this guy is a moron and I hate him. Like, none of that nonsense. 
We just cut that out of our church. If it fails, then we move on to the next line of action. This is the the final one. Three steps. If private reconciliation fails, then we move on to bringing other people in. Step one, gather two or three witnesses. So this is not about rallying people to your cause. Right? This is not about getting as many people as, who also hate that guy and then making a little club and protesting in the foyer after church. This is not none of that. This is not about triangulating anybody or by trying to um, force the person into dealing with reality. This is simply a, an Old Testament practice that Jesus refers to here. And it's, about, it's not about um, forcing anyone to do anything. It's about establishing truth. It's about establishing fact from fiction. It's about clarifying the situation. You just need to know this about me. Just, just, and, and I hope this is true of our entire leadership. I talk to the parish council about it every year. You need to know this about us. If you come to me or one of us and say anything that begins with this, a lot of people are saying, you just need to know that I'm not listening to anything else you say. I've just, I've shut my ears. I might nod, but I've not, I'm non comprende. A lot of people are saying is another one of those toxic devices of the enemy. Because the question is really, who? One person, three people, a hundred people? Are they really all saying the thing that you're saying or are you just wanting me to do what you want me to do? I don't mean to be obstinate or arrogant about this. I'm just saying that doesn't work and so we don't do it. Jesus says, gather one or two people who are witnesses. He's, He's quoting Deuteronomy 19 and this is a principle in the Old Covenant and the New. If he won't listen, the person who is offended, take one or two others with you so that, this is the quote, by the testimony of two or three witnesses, every fact may be established. This is about just seeking truth. So that you can go to the person and say, this is not about me and you. This is, I don't have a problem with you. This is not just I'm, I find you to be uh, repulsive. This is something that a couple of us have, have witnessed and we would like to talk with you about it in this small group environment where it's, it's not just me and you now. That failed, we tried that. Now it's, we're, we're gonna do this in a, in a small group environment and sometimes the fact that it's not just that one person who's, telling, who's calling you out can be helpful. Maybe it gives a little bit more perspective. Maybe it takes some of the blinkers off that might have been there otherwise. It's not as easy to dismiss. 
When it comes to inviting two or three witnesses, this is what Jesus picks up on in terms of the, uh, the authority of God being in that small group while they're figuring this thing out. And that's why I think it's important at this stage that you realise the weight of what's being undertaken. This brings with it a whole lot of like cosmic authority that shouldn't be messed with. So that means the two or three of you need to spend significant time in prayer, asking God for wisdom and anointing this meeting that we're going to have and praying that his will would be done and re-establishing the goal as being forgiveness and reconciliation and all of that stuff where you go messing with this kind of thing. Now, if that fails, two or three witnesses, we've, we've done private, we've done two or three, if that fails, you move on to the next step. Gather the church. So we're broadening it out, one, three, now we're talking about the church. Now, uh, let's just hear what he has to say. It's the first part of chapter, uh, verse 17 of chapter 18. He says, if he doesn't pay attention to them, those two or three, tell the church. Now, to put this in context, you've got to remember the church in the first century is not 100 people, it's not 1,000 people. We're talking about little house church groups. And so I don't know the number exactly, but I think that this step is best done in the context of a small group. So this is ideal. If the people involved are in a small group, it's just ideal for you to deal with it in that context where everyone knows one another, everyone's committed to one another, and in that context, this can work really well. Um, Small group plus church leadership. Church leadership should be invited in to this, this stage, So whether that's me or some other leaders in the church, just to help govern it. But I don't imagine we'll ever have the situation where in front of everyone we drag someone up in front of, you know, like it just doesn't work. It's also pretty embarrassing for the person in question. We want to avoid that. Remember, we're trying to win the person, not condemn them. Now, if that fails, then you go to the climax. This is the last step this is the we've tried everything else step this is the step you take with tears and trembling it's to release expectations on that person i'll tell you what how i get to that from second part of verse 17 this is what jesus says if he doesn't pay attention even to the church let him be like a gentile and a tax collector to you now this passage is dangerous Obviously dangerous. In the house, in the, in the hands of a bully or a self-righteous church leader, this can be a weapon. A weapon of excommunication, a weapon of condemnation. The opportunity to kick that person out that we never liked anyway. I don't think that's what Jesus is referring to at all. Think about it. How did Jesus treat Gentiles and tax collectors. Any thoughts? 
He loved them. Because he's full of grace and truth, he both challenged and invited them. To the woman caught in adultery, neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. Magnificent. Treating someone like a tax collector and a Gentile means we identify their sin. This is unrepentant sin. We have tried everything in our power. Now we identify their sin. But we continue to love and pursue and invite them in. We long for reconciliation both with us and with God. We're desperate to have them come to repentance. But we're also unmoving in our conviction that they are in the wrong and they're refusing to act according to biblical, gospel-centered Christian belief. So at that point, we just release them from gospel-centered biblical expectations. So long as you are here and an active member of the church and desiring to follow Jesus and sitting under the authority of the Bible, we will continue to call you to a certain standard of living. Because it's on the basis that you're a follower of Jesus. Okay, you're following Jesus. Jesus is going this way. You've peeled off this way. Come back into faithful walking with Jesus. You believe in the authority of the scriptures over your life. Here is an obvious example of where you are not submitting yourself to the authority of the scriptures. So come back. Now, the point where you demonstrate that you are not following Jesus or sitting under the authority of his word, then we release you from the expectation. We're no longer going to to call you and command you and exhort you to repent because you don't follow Jesus. And so we release you from that expectation. At this point, it's probably best to get another party involved a group or a mediator or a counselor or someone who's not going to hold this person to biblical standards and just turn them over to that person who will be able to work with them on the grounds that they're functioning on, not biblical ones. I I, I need to make this really emphatic. This is the last straw, right? This is we've been through everything and with tears and trembling, we are making this We're making this determination, understanding that Jesus said what will be bound on earth will be bound in heaven, loosed on earth, loosed in heaven. No one's playing games. We release them from gospel-centered expectations is they're revealing that they don't live by them. We're releasing them from the obligation to follow Jesus because they're revealing that they aren't a follower of Jesus. Make sure you pick this up on your way out and just, I would love, I would love it if you would just stick this to your bed head or your fridge or your 
dashboard or something because it's something that we have to keep going back to because we have to keep being shaped. The fact, the fact is that we just, we're, we, we just keep regressing through our life back to fleshly ways of doing things and the way of Jesus doesn't come naturally to us a lot of the time. But I do believe that this, what he's told us here this morning, is a recipe for the flourishing of our church. Like the full blossoming, flowering, flourishing of this church. So I'd love us to commit to it. It's the responsibility of every believer, not a vicar thing, this is not a leadership thing, this is an every believer thing, this is all of us. I want to finish just with a responsive prayer for us to pray, and I'm conscious that you don't know what's coming up um, in this prayer, and so I'm not getting you to say any of it, I'm going to say it on our behalf, and if you agree with what I'm saying on each of these pages, I want you to, to join in with, oh God, make us the instruments of your peace. Whether I'm the one who's caused the sin, whether I'm the one responding to it, whether I'm one of the two or three or the larger group, make me an instrument of your peace. That's the prayer. So I'm going to invite you to pray this with me. Then we're going to have a song just for reflection. We'll just stay seated um, and, just, and just chew over some of this. Ask God to bed it in to our hearts. And then uh, Nora will come and intercede for us. So let us pray. Lord God, help us to face conflicts in our relationships with one another. Give us courage that we might, by careful labor and loving encounter, move beyond our disagreements to find true reconciliation. O oh God, make us the instruments of your peace. Next slide. Encourage us to keep our own struggles and needs in perspective so that we do not overpower others with our disappointments and our hurt. Oh God, make us the instruments of your peace. Enable us to do the careful listening that gives understanding. Let us set aside our own needs long enough to respond to the needs of others. Oh God, make us the instruments of your peace. Save us from the preoccupations and busyness that cause us to lose touch with one another. Help us to follow one another's lives so that we can support when there is failure and celebrate when there is success. Oh God, make us the instruments of your peace. Lead us to understand that we are all your children, made in your image and carrying your promise. Help us to celebrate the uniqueness of each person and to see the differences among us as sources of strength and vitality. Oh God, make us the instruments of your peace. Let us see the peacemaking opportunities you create 
and help us to reach out to one another, to speak the loving word, and to do justice in our communities and households. O oh God, make us the instruments of your peace. Amen. of darkness your word shaped the earth in your image of people made but we traded perfection the truth for a lie and your glory was veiled in shame but a promise made a blessing you gave to a people of For this broken world, a Savior foretold to bear all our grief and pain. When the heavenly Savior descended His throne, all my sin on His shoulders lay. And to win our redemption, he suffered and died for the sake of my guilt and shame. Oh, the price he paid in taking my place so that death was overcome. When the King of love burst forth from the grave, proclaiming passed away, I will gaze on my Savior's face. When my heart is perfection, free from my sin, I will rest in your glorious grace. For the song we raise, the works of our hands are in service of when a thousand tongues cry glory to God, forever His praise will sing. For a thousand tongues cry glory to God, forever His praise will sing. Forever His praise.